0: I could see tears in her eyes because every stitch had broken all my gut was just hanging out
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans have a chat with them and hear their stories I'm Alex Lloyd and this is life on the line they were building Positions in there four to us, By the time anyone got to us, no, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad there would be like to the full of And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd oh, send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst. Proud, proud of the crew, proud of I what can. I've achieved and what I'm doing.
0: Volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line.
1: Welcome to the final episode for season two of Life on the Line. For this last veteran conversation, I spoke with Jack Bell. Jack is a World War II veteran and a survivor of Italian and Nazi prisoner of war camps. I'm Alex Lloyd, and today I'm in Melbourne with Jack Bell. Jack, thanks for having me in your home and for coming on the show. Now, my pleasure, no trouble, Alex. Now, Jack, when were you born?
0: 20th of December, 1917. And where was that? In a little place, Twong in suburb of Brisbane. And what was your family like? The typical family of that age, because it was the end of the First World War, and there was a lot of restrictions, I believe. But my father and mother worked hard during their lives, and we they had four kids, and I looked after them. We moved from house to house, till so we built a house in what was then Church Street, Toowong. So I think there was two bedrooms plus a whole veranda where all the kids slept out in the veranda. And my father worked as a master joiner, building stairs and church pews and stuff like that. And my mother worked very hard for the church because when I was a little lad, the Depression really hit Australia when I was 9, 10, 11. And over the ensuing years, my father's business fell away because... There was about 30% unemployment in, in Queensland or maybe Australia, I'm not quite sure, and his workforce dropped from 85 to 25, so they were struggling as, as a company. And I went to work as a boy of 16 to a place called d w Murray, which was a warehouse wholesale goods, clothing, etc. And I stayed there until the war broke out in 1939. But in 1938, I joined the militia force and the artillery section, which was uh, had twenty five pounders and howitzers as their armament. and all this armament was, of course from the first world war, was very old, mark twos and Mark fives. And when the war did break out, we went into camp for a month, and I decided that as I was acting sergeant on the gun, the gun, I was a gun gunlay originally. I could hit a an anthill. 3,000 yards away over hills and mountainous country without any problem after ranging shots. So I decided that I wouldn't stay in the village. In the I'd join the Air Force. So when we got back to Brisbane in December, I applied to join the Air Force. Well, I couldn't get a discharge from the Army until my call-up came from the Air Force because as I was a volunteer, they couldn't stop me leaving. And I thought, well, that that's good. I'm now... In the Air Force, and no, was called up for the 24th of May 1940. And about 40 or 50 of us arrived at the, the recruiting office in Creek Street, which was right opposite the NW Murray's. And I'll never forget that we were all outside ready to march to the South Brisbane Railway Station. And the boys in the warehouse called out, You'll be sorry, which was a, a cryptic phase that would pass through right through the war for anybody just joining up. You'll be sorry because they'd be sorry. They were. A lot of them were. So we entrained to Sydney. Now, we all wanted to be pilots, of course, but it wasn't everybody couldn't be a pilot. So we got to the central station in Sydney and they read out the names. They were pilots, they read out names. They were navigators, they read out names. They were wireless operators, air gunners. I was in the last category. So then from then on, we entrained into Ballarat, arrived there on the 27th, and it was cold as charity. to coming from Queensland to... <laughs> Ballarat, in the end of May, was like icebergs to me. I slept in my clothes, everything, a whole lot, all on, with my overcoat, the sippy overcoat and three blankets. We are housed in the Ballarat Showgrounds buildings, which was galvanised iron, sides and roof and a cement floor with one stove in the middle heating it, one little coal-fired stove. And there were probably, when I went in, there were easily 200 recruits in that building, sleeping on the cement floor, three sheet pieces of timber in a V-shape wood with a pallias filled with straw as the mattress. What they call initial training was very easy for me because I'd been in the army the militia for three years, so that didn't worry me at all. But a lot of the boys didn't know they left from their right foot. But eventually everybody passed out from Ballarat and went up to Evans Head. We did move into the Ballarat air groom, I think it was in August... End of August, we moved into huts, which housed 25 to 30 in each hut, I expect, overseen by a corporal. And we went up to Evanshead in November to do the gunnery course. And the British government had sent out, I think, 16 or 18 ferry battles, which now they were an aircraft that were underpowered, heavy, and were used in the early parts of the war, but they found to be obsolete. Of the 18, there was only three serviceable. The rest of us still had their shrapnel holes and things needed to be repaired. My complete gunnery course in the air shooting a gun, which was a Vickers Go Gun, as it was called, was probably 40 hours flying. I went up, I think, three times for about 15 or 20 minutes, something like that. might have been a little bit less. And everybody passed the gunnery course because nobody knew what the hell we were doing anyway. And the instructors of just a permanent air force, they weren't highly trained for this type of work at the start. So we're sent on our final leave and then we were tra- shipped out of Australia on the Aquitania. I think it was the 6th or 7th of February 1941 and our destination, we, we were told, whether it was true or not, we don't know, it was the United Kingdom. Well, we finished up in India for three or four weeks, resting there while transport arranged. We finished up in Africa and arrived at port side, And I was put into a, a transit camp with all the others and eventually sent to Heliopolis. About 25, 26 were sent to Heliopolis. Now, we were all wireless operator air gunners. And when we got there, 20 of us were trained as cipher officers because there was lack of people to interpret cipher the... Signals, which I never had to do anything about that because I was transferred or put on the on the strength of two two sixteen squadron, which was fitted out with Bristol Bombays, Vickers Valencia's, and unfortunately my transfer from the Middle East pool didn't arrive until August. Well, I was on the supposed to be on the strength on since the June when I was out, I arrived at Heliopolis. so I finished up going there in August and. Uh, at that time, the actual front was rather fluid. We moved up to a little place called Mersumatru, True, and from there, the offensive took place in November 6th, 17th, 18th, against the German Africa Corps. Now, though everything went well, our duties were taken out of the bombing raids because our aircraft were flying and we were were also obsolete. The Vickers Valenti was built, was originally built in, designed in 1921, so it was a fabric air, wings and aircraft, and it was very slow. And the pilot and the navigator sat out in the front in in an open cockpit with a windscreen up, and they used to use a a pith helmet to keep the sun off them. There was a pilot, a navigator, later became observers, a Wallace operator air gunner, a fitter and a rigger. It could be two pilots or one pilot.
1: Some were f- double fitted like two two pilots or rather single. single. So in your yeah. role, you're having to juggle wireless ops and get on the gunner well, position if required. If <laughs> required. I was never required. Now, top speed of these were 80
0: miles an hour. And in a headwind, trucks would pass us on the ground because they were fast by time. If you strike a headwind, you're only doing about 30 or 40. And those trucks did did actually pass us. We were doing transport, we were flying up, bringing back wounded from the front or taking up some medical supplies, replacement aircrew or medical staff or whatever, and we used to fly. But the, the Valentis were very quickly taken out of service, and only used in around Egypt and down to Somaliland. But the Bristol Bombay bore the brunt of it and built by Harald and Wolff, they were shipbuilders and they decided that because the aircraft wasn't balanced, according to Navy speculation, they would shift the main spar of the, of the main wing four inches forward. Now, it doesn't seem very much, but when you're in an aircraft and you the tanks are full of fuel and you're carrying a load and you've got an air gunner in the tail and you're flying along, after about two, two and a half hours, the fuel in the tanks is lightened, you probably drop personnel in the the aircraft and it's just a tail gunner sitting there with the crew forward of the main main spar. So what used to happen was, and we didn't find this out until about August, what might be November 41, we lost a number of aircraft crashing on the way flight home. And what had happened was that the air gunner, the weight of him, when the fuel tanks are nearly empty and there's no load in it, the tail dropped, nose straight into the ground. From then on, we never had a tail gunner. The guns were taken out and the back turret was never used. We did do training jobs. For instance, we trained the first group of SAS personnel. They were formed under Captain David Stirling, who unfortunately saw his brother on the wire of Tobruk being shot slowly to death. And he was begging for mercy, somebody to kill him. Drove David to start this SAS. Now, this was an filtration to get behind enemy lines and damage their, their actually... This is the inaugural mission into Libya? This is the initial one. Now, that was the first group of SAS ever formed that I'm aware of. There may be not, but I don't think so. Now, these, they were the first behind the lines as a whole new concept well, of a way to fight yes, a war? Yes, absolutely. What we used to do, they were flown in. Now, I was never on one of these aircraft. but flown in and they were dropped 10 or 12 miles away from the targets they were looking at. And they were plastic bombs on only the port or starboard wing of the aircraft on the ground, not one of each, always the one wing. So that was very hard to bastardise, repair the aircraft. And it was very very successful. But, of course, they got captured. A lot of them got captured, a lot got killed. And on the night of the 17th, 18th of November, unfortunately, the three aircraft went back. Only one really got back. One was completely lost, they were over 30 miles off of course, these to the high winds, and the second aircraft was force-landed, and i never met anybody other than one person from that group during the war who was a prisoner. I don't know how
1: many finished up prisoners, I haven't got a clue. Can you share with me a bit about the base you were at for 216 Squadron, the atmosphere, the sights and sounds?
0: Well, the base at Mersma True was... Uh, Unfortunately, there was these sandstorms used to come in quite regularly, and if you didn't have a lead rope to get to your tent, you couldn't go, couldn't get there. But our main job from then on was carrying supplies. Now, regularly, I mean, I would—I don't know—my logbook was lost in 1952 in a flood. But I—we did a lot of flights, but we never recorded half of them because it was we were only flying to Cyprus or flying to Tel Aviv or down to, to Sudan. And you know, there was nothing meaningful about it. But we're always bringing back wounded or taking medical supplies or dr- replacement staff. And it was the worst trips that we did, I think, was in the Battle of the City Resaig, which was a tank battle of about 1,000 tanks involved, of which I only think about a third were German. The rest were British forces. But the tanks that the British forces had were far sub to what the Germans had. I mean, they just blew them out like... Tin cans, and I did three trips up to the front, it, when the front was over the over this hill. We were still land behind, and they bring these stretcher cases out, and we could only about thirteen or fourteen on it. But we always carried extra ones, even just lying on the floor, if we possibly get them on the aircraft. And it was staggering. We were not permitted to give them any food or water. All we could do was to wet their parched lips. Now some of these men were so horribly burnt. I mean, the pain must have been excruciating. Although the adrenaline slips in, I, I, maybe they didn't feel as much as they should have. But it was terribly hard for us to not to f- give them water because they had stomach wounds, all sorts of problems. I doubt that half of them would have lived anyway. I don't know, but I, you know. But at the stage, you don't didn't think much about them it because it's just war. You just did what we doing a job, and uh, I'll never forget. We used to do trips to, to Cyprus, Nicosia. We used to land up. We'd go to Tel Aviv. Now we're we're all issued with cigarettes in the air force. About 60 cigarettes a week. So we used to save these up. They wood binds. They're a terrible cigarette. And we'd go to Tel Aviv. We take all these issued cigarettes. The crew. It was a racket worked by the by the squadron. So we'd sell the cigarettes to the Intellivit to buy cases of oranges. And then we'd fly the oranges to Dickensia and we'd trade the the oranges for bottles of Scotch whiskey, which is only four and six months, you know, there's nothing at all. Sounds like a good trade to me. Well, it was a good trade because when we came back, we sold them to the officer's mess for 12 and six and kept the rest ourselves and had three nights in them in the sergeant's mess. Well, it worked out very well because I couldn't buy Scotch whiskey for 12 and 6 cents Cairo
1: anyway. So it worked out well. I'd go to one of your parties in a heartbeat. <laughs>
0: uh, well, it was just a bit of a side on, but my war really was, wasn't that bad. I never had to face the enemy in direct fire or anything like that except when I was shot down. So I know very little about the actual ground war at all. Did you ever have a chance to interact with the locals or. Well, yes and no. Unfortunately, were, the Brits weren't very kind to the Egyptian people. Uh, they were not slaves exactly, but they were very treated very, very badly. They were terribly paid. Well, I suppose that was the norm for the income at the time. I'm not quite sure. But I remember one driver telling me, he said, if you run into a, what they termed them as jippos, and you knock them down, you ran back and ran over them, killed them, because it was cheaper for the British government to bury them than it was to treat them in the hospital.
1: I have no words. That's appalling. Well,
0: I mean, you can imagine how we, the Australians, felt. They, they was they were horrified that this driver said this. Whether it ever happened, we don't know because we were, he was only a driver. But I don't know. But I certainly, I don't think that I saw any mixed race going on. Or I don't don't remember any There possibly could have been. But I don't know. But in the hierarchy of the Egyptian. Lifestyle. They were very nice people. Absolutely, they were. But when you got out in the desert, well, they were on their camels or their, their to, and they were nomads. But they knew where all the water holes were. That was the big, big thing that we
1: needed to, to get water when we were flying, flying around. The authorities had to cooperate with them no matter what exactly. wartime imperial hubris they that- were acting under. Exactly. That was exactly what it was. And uh, fair enough. But
0: to me now, it was horrible. But when when we were there, well, it was just part of the deal. That was the day, way, way that it went.
1: Now, Jack, the 23rd of January, 1942. Talk me through that day. Well, the 23rd of January, we, were, we weren't
0: we were a part of a fixed crew, Tony and I. We were replacements on anybody who would, would arrest or had to be sick. something. We, we took their place. We took off this morning and we The intention was we were to fly to a little place called Masseus, which was south of Benghazi, to pick up brigade headquarters. And we'd had on board a couple of pilots, medical supplies and a medic. Now, I don't know whether it's a doctor or just just a medical. Boy, I don't know, because you don't sort of meet these. They come in, you get in, they load the plane up, away you go. We set the course for Masseus and there was a very strong headwind. Because in the desert... The clouds were pretty low first thing in the morning. The so DeSibre flight 3,000 feet to get up over it. This is the direction from the officer in, the, in charge of the, of the flight. And to descend to 1,000 feet under the cloud bank as we approached Masseuse. Well, unfortunately, we were off course. And we we're probably thirty miles south of Masseuse when we came when we came out, out under the cloud bank. And the pilot corrected the course to fly to Masseuse. And coming down over the escarpment to land at Masseuse, we ran across we didn't know, a echelon of tanks from the fifteenth Panzer Division, which they're supporting vehicles, their ACAC vehicles. We probably were maybe 700, 800 feet when the when the when the attack took place, and it was just if you can imagine a piece of brown paper that rattled these little 0.3 bullets through the wing. The wing's 94 feet long, you yeah, know, its very wide. It was like pe- tearing a piece of brown paper slowly. And then point fives took off. And both, of course the jerrys had the bofers gun. We didn't know what they were, just a hell of a bloody noise going on. <laughs> and the plane burst into flames. Now... An 88 shell, fortunately for us, was not armour-piercing. Came through behind the pilot and went up through out the aircraft and then exploded. Fortunately, and, but the shrapnel came down. The first pilot, Flight Lieutenant Wilcox Pluto, he was so badly injured in one leg that he lost it that same day in the hospital. But it killed Tony Carter outright. Now the second pilot didn't get a scratch, not one piece of shrapnel, nothing. He was sitting right next, in front of Tony. Now, I was sitting behind the transmitter and the radio, so I had some protection. Well, it landed, hit there, and the shell group came down Now I only got hit up the right leg, through the abdomen, up to the arm now, I'm here. Frankly, I thought, God, this is it. I'm gone. This is this is it. And the aircraft was on fire, and the second pilot took over and brought it down. Now, un, unbeknownst to us, we didn't know. The Jerry's were there. We... we Actually the second pilot thought it was our own ground fire was <laughs> the free French or something <laughs> was attacking us in mistake. Anyway, landed quite roughly, but door the door was opened by the fitter or the rigger, I'm not quite sure at the back, so they would start to get out. Now one of the pilot one of the pilots we were carrying had his right arm so lacerated they had to remove that. Now I got out of the aircraft. As I got out, I put my hand round the side of it. Getting a give leverage because I I didn't realise I was so badly wounded I was. You weren't in much pain. You no, the adrenaline hit in. You just you'd get out.
1: You know. Did you re- you register that you had blood down the side? Well,
0: no, no, not really, because I was wearing a wool jacket. You know, the, these little bits of shrapnel did. So the extent of your injuries, you just didn't really realise. I didn't really know. Oh, all on your burning sensation in abdomen. Well, that was of course the the shrapnel and in the intestine, flying off the bait. Who's the second pilot? Called out, said, "Jack, will you come round and help me get Pluto out?" Now, in the front of the aircraft, there's an escape hatch, which they used. pilots could use, and they would open that. Pluto was sitting, sitting with his legs dangling out of it, and he said, "Well, watch it. Can you catch him?" Well, now I wasn't that far away. I mean, he probably his legs were there when I was standing there. But undone the either, because when a body crawls on top of your engine, you, get it, it's sort of boy with a bang. Anyway, we managed to get him here. Then he jumped out. And we managed to get Wilcox a little bit away. And a little a German orderly came up. Very, you could tell he was very frightened. He was scared to death. And he got a piece of plaster out about that square, and lifted the jacket up and put, put over one of the holes in the stomach because I was bleeding so badly. We were put on stretchers and and taken in a British captured British ambulance to a little place called Antlat, where they had the German 15th Division Field Hospital was. Now, we had had nothing, nothing to drink, but we are all lined up outside this... I can never forget it, lined outside this hospital, probably 20 or 30 of us, I can imagine. Not only wounded from our area, but also other wounded
1: from, from the German side. And sorry, from your plane, did everyone but Tony survive? Yes. Yes, they all survived. The pilot and the
0: other, the English pilot, Wilson. they were repatriated in, I think, October that year back to Britain because they'd lost an arm and a leg. You see, they were non-combatants from then on, so they sent them home. But the German, two German doctors and a padre came across and walked up and down assessing the wounded. Now, there were two German Air Force boys who'd been shot down by hurricanes and they'd, they were badly wounded in the abdomen not only in the abdomen, but elsewhere. I was number three. They first two went in I was number three. Now, irrespective of the... didn't care with POWs or... the order was how badly wounded you went in. Now, I don't remember much at all from then on because I was drugged up. But a couple of days... must have been a couple of days later, the German doctor came to see me and he said what he'd done. He'd removed a bit of intestine and patched me up and should be OK. But... He spoke perfect English. And I said, Where did you learn your English? Well, he said, I learned it in Germany after the First World War. I was a graduate after the war. And uh, I decided that part of the reparation, as we were requested, would we go to England to practice? So he said, I thought, well, maybe it'd be better there than here. So he said, I went to England. And he said, I trained in hospitals there. And he finished up as a Harley Street abdominal specialist. I didn't know, because over the course of the next few days, he, he imparted this knowledge to me. And he gave me his address on a piece of paper, and I had that in my paybook in my pocket. He said that they don't trust me, you know. He said, I'm only second in charge, but he's an abdominal specialist. Now, the two German pilots died, and I lived. Now, you can imagine in a German hospital tent what the attitude was from the Boys there, the German boys, I mean, why do you live and they died, you know? I mean, Great suspicion. On well, I had doctor. a gun pointed at my head, you know, and I, was, cause I told them to shut up because they were listening to Hitler on the radio and it was just a noise to me. It was annoying me, you know? and I can understand how they felt about that because <laughs> now, but at the time, I didn't. Unfortunately, he came to see me on you know, about seven or eight days later, I forget exactly, but... He said, ''Now, look, we've got to hand you all the wounded over to the Italians. We only take walking wounded or unwounded prisoners.'' So we would, he said, ''Now, you'll be leaving in the morning. You should be on the back of a truck, a flat top, to go to Tripoli, which is about 400 miles away.'' And he said, ''I will re-dress your wound.'' Now, I had 14 lateral stitches and two over-tying stitches to hold the abdomen. That's where he put those in that, that morning.'' bound me up in wide bandages, round and round, really tight bandages. And he gave me a shot of morphine in my left leg, and I'm not sure how many he gave me, maybe eight or ten files. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And I've had those in my other battle dress jacket. And he said, every night and every morning, you jab yourself. Because he said, you're going on a truck, the road to Tripoli is desert, army vehicles will have preference on the roads, you might have to go off track. And he said, goodness knows what'll happen. The first night now, there was a little bit of a canopy on this truck, but it was we couldn't move around I couldn't get up and move it anyway. so the first night we arrived at this little Italian depot, and I was taken out on the train, and I was just wheeled over like this now you can't blame the Italian boys for that that I mean, they were at war, you know, what this you know they swearing of obviously, and of course that hurt, and I was. I don't remember really, but it was shocking to me. But anyway, I gave myself, and I thought, now, before you leave in the morning, jab. I him, if you will get off that truck, jab yourself. So the next three days was quite... Delirious. I don't know. I haven't got a clue. Nothing. I know we were strafed. But arriving at Tripoli, this was the most amazing thing to me. I, I could never get over it. I was put in a room in this hospital on my own. Now, I wasn't conscious, obviously, but the next day an Italian nurse came in. She would be probably in her 50s, I would think, something, but she looked old to me, but, you know... When you are that age. Yeah, that age, that's old. It could have been 40s. But she spoke reasonably good English. Probably this was why I was put here, I don't know. Italian doctor came in and he said, oh, the nurse will dress your wound. I'd given the files of morphine to her... And she'd administered one to me, so I was hazy. But I can remember her sitting there, looking over me. Her eyes, I could see tears in her eyes. Cause every stitch had broken. All my gut was just hanging out. She brushed, washed me, took, oh, it must be a considerable time. And so anyway, she me, and I went back to sleep. And the next morning she said, you haven't eaten because I've been fed intravenously. I never had any food or anything. She said, you have to eat otherwise you'll die. So she brought in a little bowl of pasta. And I thought, oh. So I tried to eat it. I couldn't eat it. I'd had an Italian restaurant in Brisbane before the war I used to go to. So it was, no, I couldn't taste it. It was terrible. And I threw it up. So she went out and there was a quince tree outside. And she went and picked quinces and boiled them up and put sugar in it. to kept me to get her taste buds back. And she saved my life. You know, that food was really marvellous. Probably stayed there a few days. I wouldn't know how many... We sailed for Italy on the 14th of February on the Aquila, which was a passenger liner that used to come to Australia before the war. Now, on the matron in charge was a lass called Countess Jano, the wife of the foreign, Italian foreign minister, who was also Mussolini's daughter. Now, she spoke English like you and I speak English, and she was both good to the prisoners as well as their own Italian wounded that were on the ship. And she used to talk to the boys, which I thought was very good, I couldn't walk, I was just still a stretcher case. And to go to the toilet, they used to lift me off the bed and I used to walk with my hands backwards like that and scramble back to the toilet. Then they had to lift me on lift me off and take me back. On halfway over, of course, Singapore fell. She quite proudly came to tell us, of course, naturally. We didn't believe her. There was no information at all, just that Singapore fell. didn't believe her. So we landed, berthed in Naples, we were taken to Little outside little village called Caserta to a prison camp hospital run by a British major, Major Martin, a nice doc, nice fella. He said, I can't do anything for you. He said, I haven't got any d- drugs or any description whatsoever. He said, all I can do is operate. Now, to operate, he had two big, strong blokes that held his patient down and he just had to cut into them. They, they had nothing to nullify pain. Ultimately, the wound healed over. And I then shifted and then tapped to a little place called Palmer, Milan. By this time, I was walking and I was bent over like that. I was bent right over. And nobody told me, the doctor, Major Martin, should have said, what you should do is straighten yourself because nobody gave me any advice whatsoever. Because like you're that. compressing your organs down. Yeah, that's right. You're holding, holding, holding. And uh, eventually got to Palmer, a naval lieutenant commander, Palmer, Skippy Palmer. He was a prisoner there. There was a lot of wounded. Practically ready to go to camps. So he decided he was going to organise an escape. He said, Well, we'll pinch a yacht out of the harbour in Milan. So I sold my watch to an Italian orderly for two slabs of chocolate to help him because the watch wasn't any good. It only had sand in it and I knew it wasn't good. Of course, somebody proudly showed his Wallace Bishop's special watch around. And of course, they said, Where'd you get that? Oh, I bought it from, for two slabs of chocolate because he was sent to the Russian front. Skipper Palmer was sent to camp and I was sent to this punishment camp straight away down to Gavina, PG-65. I had a sergeant and three swaddies three privates, accompanied me on that train. Took after me. I was a dangerous person. <laughs> <laughs> Jeepers. For so, well, one black market deal. <laughs> like black market. Attempting chocolate. to escape was was the crime. Never attempted any escape at all. Just wanted some chocolate. That's right. Well, so anyway, we got down to the camp there. Now, in our and probably 600 fellas, maybe 550, something like that. And they were dying
1: at the rate of about five or six a week. What's happening in the punishment camp? How's well, that different from a normal camp? Well,
0: rations. Yeah, well, the water is only on from 12 noon to 2 p.m. No mm. longer. That's it. Rations were very, very meagre. I can't quite remember exactly, but we got like 14 broccoli bushes and 12 cabbage bushes. Now, that's with roots and all. So what the cooks did, they just hosed off, smashed everything up into a sort of a shredded pulp, roots and all, and just boiled it up and served as a gruel. 600 men, that's all. Two days' rations, that's what it was. Now, they had a little bit of Puree they kept in the, you know, a little bit of meat extract, so they put some flavour in it. But it was virtually water, just a little bit of green stuff floating around in it. No wonder they were dying. Now we never got a Red Cross parcel in that camp, not one. They lads told me that they originally were three thousand in Tripoli, and a thousand came to that camp, and they were down to six hundred. They didn't know whether they died or whether they've been sent to other camps or what. But you know, they were they were very despondent. What happened after, I don't know, because I, I was... You weren't in that
1: camp very long?
0: No, four weeks. So I was sent up to Udini to the Dominion camp, which was Australian New Zealanders, and there were a few camp PG-57 Udine, a little place called Ignano, which was governed by a... Calcatira,
1: yes. Lovely fellow. I've got a quote here about Calcatira, actually. Calcuttaire's regime reduced the camp to a mass of neuroses as no one knew when his turn would come to be victimised. An Australian doctor recorded that 10 Australians died. The number saved by Red Cross aid, the doctor wrote, is beyond computation. That's right. Calcuttaire died before he could be tried as a war criminal. Yeah. Mm. Can you describe for our listeners camp PG-57 sort of what the location was like, the complex, um, who the other prisoners were, where it was, and the, the day-to-day life?
0: It was about 30 miles from Trieste on the Gulf of Yugoslavia, about 18 from Udine, Udine as we call it. It's Udine, but Udine. And this is a little place called Group Ignano, which is just a flat area, sandy soil. The Australian prisoners of war Engineering group, they actually built the camp. Timber fr- structure was started by the Italians, but they really finished it. They put in the watering system, the toilet system, the shower system, and the roadways. They made sure that the traffic way was all, were all done. There was four compounds, and each compound there's roughly 700 blokes or say 800 something, a couple of thousand Australians and probably 1200 New Zealanders, or something like that. Our section, number two compound, was, was run by Sergeant Major Alan Beecroft from Tasmania and he had a runner, his boy used to go in and do all the running, and the doctor was Captain Levings from South Australia Medical, and there were quite a medical corps group in there, which had been captured. Now, he saved so many men in that camp, that it's unbelievable to me what he did. The Red Cross came to assess those that should be sent back home and they... International Red Cross, and they assess them, and they put through. They put my name through, and I said to Dr Leverwood, I'm, I'm walking, They won't. I, I can't go home. They, well, they wouldn't let me go. He said, no, they won't. But he said, we've got to make numbers up so as to get the really wounded blokes away. And that's how it worked. Maybe only 10 people went, I don't know. But uh, he said, you've got to put numbers up to make sure that they witness what, what's going on here. But it was a shocking camp. This bloke used to come on parade. A man in the next compound wouldn't stand up and salute him. He'd seen him in the boob for two weeks, bread and water, because he didn't stand up. And he's 100 or 50 yards away, for God's sake. And if there was a misdemeanor, he didn't punish that bloke. He punished six others, just him, 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 bang. And sent him to isolated uh, confinement. That's right. And it, this is the cruelty of it all. But there were the funny side in that
1: camp also. I mean Did you guys have things like theatre troops or other entertainment you guys tried to do? To they did experience? in the in number
0: one compound, not in number two. They were really getting started on that when we when the war Italian war finished. The boys played two up. Now there was a payment program on. They get a little card about that size which is marked ten lira. It was run by a bloke called Sock Simons and Cocky Walpole that was Two blokes, both from Victoria. Cocky was a, a Polish Jew who'd been in trouble with the police and was given the choice. Join the army or go to go to jail. He joined the army. He was a he was a real <laughs> tough little boy he was. The Sock Simons was a rough Larrigan type. I decided that the thing for me to do was to back the tails, because everybody at the back heads. Head was the thing to do. So I just Throw my money and I'd lose it, all cigarettes, whatever I had. But one day, I broke the bank. Thirteen straight tails. Wow. Now, I had so much money and cigarettes, I took it to the hut, now I'll knock a west. And I said, knock it. take all this, go to the little store, just buy grog. I don't care what you get, just buy grog. And now a hut. I frankly, I don't remember that day. I haven't got a clue. I didn't go and parade. I, I was one day. I, I wasn't a POW. Now poor old Socks. Not shortly after. Not, not far not after that, I was sitting outside Alan Beecroft's hut, which is the top of the parade ground. The main huts were down there. And Socks, Simons, and Cocky—they were playing about. They'd had a few few charges from their ill-gotten gains, and they had a, probably a couple of wines as well. But Socks was playing around, and the guard was in the camp and shot him dead. Just got him right bang. What was the provocation or the excuse? Trying to escape. He was in the middle of the compound. He was acting the fool, certainly. He might have felt victimised or having a go at him, but really there was no provocation. Anyway, they sent him on a fortnight's leave and 500 lira bonus. Bonus? Bonus. And, of course, he was reported after the war. Of course, he, I, I don't know. Oh, I know that he's brought to justice. I don't know what happened. There would have been other witnesses. Oh,
1: oh, yeah, or oh, plenty Plenty of people gave witness to to Alan Beecroft, oh yes. And when you, um though, had your twenty four hour blackout haze, that wasn't picked up on, you weren't punished for that? I must have been sick. <laughs>
0: Probably Doc Clay would fix that. I wouldn't have a clue. Nondescript liver (laughs) poisoning. No,
1: yes. (laughs) What were your feelings on being in prison? Did you feel like I should be out there helping the war efforts? Did you feel any shame? How did you internalise it? You felt a little shame. Of course you did. But the
0: main thing was survival. Help your mates. Keep going. Walk round. Make sure. Now, food was terribly hard. I can remember walking around the compound. Now, parmesan cheese was the staple cheese that was served. Now, as you know, there's a pretty thick crust on that of the cheese cheese cloth, and it's pretty thick. It used to be cut off by the cookhouse staff, and each hut in turn would get their pieces of cheese. It's got to suck. Well, I can remember one day I was walking back to the hut, and there was a piece of it was a square like that on the ground. Somebody dropped it. I picked it up. And I sucked that, I remember sucking that so long, you know, until it got right down to the actual cheesecloth on the inside. I was hungry. We had beriberi, which was swelling your knees and joints and so forth. But we had a few Indians in the camp. And Dr. Levens worked it out. He couldn't understand it because they they didn't suffer from beriberi. And he approached them and they said, We eat the weed, we eat the weed. We what you call a pigweed in Queensland. It was a very small leaf, but very full of juice. From, and this was the vitamin B. Boiled it up, got cured, and we did get did get medical passes from the Red Cross there, which he doled out. And it, it it was cured. We got rid of it all right. But the pred, the pass of the Calcateries do we give you one to six men, then they give you three in a row, then starve you again. You know, sort of keep you guessing all the time what's going to happen. Nineteen of the fellas escaped, dug a tunnel out and got through. Were you involved or no, were you aware of that? No, okay. I, I, look, I, at that stage, my stomach had ruptured in so many places. I couldn't lift anything. I had five ruptures on the actual wound itself. I could play cricket, but I couldn't hit the ball into the bat. It hurt too much, but I could slow bow.
1: <laughs> so it was easier just to yeah. get by day by yeah. day? And, yeah. yeah,
0: and I took eight wickets for two runs one day, which was <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> But the bloke that Fitzy Vincent was in our camp, he was a sergeant with Charlie Upton, a double VC for New Zealand, and his grandson played Test cricket for New Zealand here in, in in Melbourne. It's nice to see. But food-wise, what we did do, we had groups of two, three, or four. Mostly but we had three, and what we used to do is pool the food. If and somebody got a parcel from a, a home of food or not food, but clothing with a little bit of food in it. We used to swap that round so we didn't sort of keep it to ourselves, just shared it and made sure that you helped your mate. It was remarkable how strong you could get by helping each other. It gave you a purpose. It, it was a purpose, a,
1: a view. We used to run little lottos when the war was going to finish. Well, on that, did you get much news um, going through um, your time in that camp? In Italy, very little.
0: There were wireless sets there. They had them. But very little news was given out to all prisoners. It was certainly hut commanders and Alan Beaker, those sort of area commanders, well, they, they got the news. People like myself know. You've got sparse news. There's an advance going on or the retreats, you know, but not just generally speaking. But in Germany, it was entirely different. Before we get to Germany, yeah.
1: what was the greatest hardship of PG-57? was the unexpectedness
0: of what was going to happen to you. I mean, they would call a parade at 2 o'clock in the morning
1: in the middle of winter, and you'd stand out there for an hour, nothing. Just stand there. And what's the point of playing games with you guys? your prisoners, you're out of... Mental. That's sadistic. Exactly. That was it. But it was very hard
0: not to succumb to that. They were a tough mob. Gee, you just had to to fight it all. How did you keep yourself fighting? Well, we... we looked, we walked in the mornings, we talked to each other, we played a game of cribbage or whatever, you know, made sure we understood what was going on in the camp. Now, our value of food was, in the ration, it was only 1,085 calories a day. Today, it's considered 3,000 to survive. So without that extra little Red Cross parcel to that 10 lira that they used to help us buy by gambling, something, you know, everybody didn't get, didn't get, get benefit, but... If you worked the system properly, you, you, you survived. My weight when I went into the camp was six stone four, 88 pounds, roughly 40 kilos. Well, that's not very much. And I stayed that weight in Italy. I never, never gained, I might have gained one or two pounds, but very, very little.
1: We got round, we managed to move and that's, that's the, you keep going, keep moving. Well, you did keep moving as yeah. well beyond PG-57. Yeah. When do you leave that camp and where do you go to? The war finished in, with Italy on the 23rd
0: of September 1943. The guards all ran away and most of the staff ran away too, but there were a few Italians left in the actual area. But we were told by the British, message came into the camp, we were not to move, we would be relieved within three or five days. Now, we're in the north of Italy for God's sake, 200 miles from the front, which is down about Rome. The very next day, we were surrounded by Germans.
1: That's very impressive that you all still maintain that discipline to follow orders, even though you'd been well, through the camp that whole time. And...
0: Otherwise, you'd be a rabble, you'd be target. If you went out, we did, the Germans are still occupying northern Italy now. If everybody just ran out, that's not going to do any good at all for the, actual, for
1: the, for the bulk of the men. That must have been devastating when the Germans oh. surrounded you guys. Oh, to have that taste of freedom! Yeah, yeah euphoria. will he's up
0: now. And bang, caught. So we were put on these in these cattle trucks. Now the cattle truck was from twelve horses or twenty-four men, but fifty to sixty prisoners were put in each truck. Now the, these cattle trucks were locked up, except up in the top left-hand corner. There was a window about the size of that top section of that door there, just where that bar runs across, and that opened. That was open, it had wire on it, but it was open, air could come through. One and a half square foot. So what we did, we organised in the hut, badly wounded or sick people, we arranged a corner they stayed in. But near that draft, and we took turns to get the fresh air, because it was all foul by the time you came back here, it was stinking air because there's so many bodies in there. And on the way, attempts were made to escape. We could hear them going. I had no inclination of escaping because I was too weak. I, I knew I couldn't do it. But some did get away. In fact, it was surprising the number that got out of that train and did get over to uh, Switzerland. I, you know, I don't know how many, but it, what, what, it was amazing that people got through. One fellow friend of mine who's died many, many years ago, a New Zealander, he joined the partisan, he killed five Germans. Finally, when we did get to Stalag 4B, we were on the parade, really. there there's not, not even huts available for us, they had
1: erected tents. Tell me more about life in Stalag 4B and how it differed and was better or worse. To live in tents in the middle of winter in Germany is it's not very good, but
0: we managed Unfortunately, do you see? But while we had great coats in Italy, when the moves on the trains were organized by the Germans, you didn't have much time. Now, my two friends, Sandy Mosson and Jimmy Edwards, both took their overcoats,
1: but an Indian pinched mine, so I arrived in Germany just in battle dress. In a tent in winter?
0: In a tent in winter.
1: And you've got nothing on you to really keep you warm? Well, I, I had no weight. Nothing else, no. I, I, but you're so lean and skinny as well. That's right. and yeah. malnourished. <laughs>
0: Anyway, we, we, we coped, but by Christmas time we had moved into, the, into these huts. Well, life in Stalag Forby was much more organised once we got there because, being prisoners from Italy, we had our huts organised immediately in the queue groups, the numbers, and the bedding and so forth. Everything was done up to then. The Air Force in that, in that area, that, what they called the Air Force camp, they didn't have a clue. Yeah, you know, they, they were there, but they were prisoners. But they had no organized no organization like a hut commander and people to do this and do that. The Italian prisoners were coming up. All the Australian, and New Zealand, they knew what to do, how to survive, what to, how to make get your beds made, to make sure you went had a shower. And all well, it was the I'm sorry to say, but some of the British Air Force boys, they say they were out of like Civvy Street into a prison camp. You know, they didn't know where they were, what they were doing. By Christmas end January that year, they were all organised properly. They had all the skilly rows and everything was done. They had their numbers and things would really run really well in that camp.
1: Are there any uh, standout memories from that camp you'd like to share with me?
0: The strongest memories of that camp are the funny ones. Not funny. They're funny and funny now, but... Please tell me. Fuel was a problem always in that camp. Not in Italy so much, because although it was cold, we did have some warmth. We had a, these huts were built. They were 10 metres wide, 30 metres long, and in the middle then was a, an ablution block with another hut the same size back onto it. So there's literally 400 men sleeping in that confinement. So you had to have things organised. Now, the first thing we had to do was fuel. Now, we were given a coal allotment to keep that fire going so you could heat up your vegetables or the stuff that you got from the red cross parcels or the f- food that was allocated to you. Of course, we ran out very quickly. So what to do? So we all slept on what was called bedboards. There were 14 bedboards to each bed on the pallias on top. So then we'd say, right, one bedboard each, come in. So it chop it up, split it, use that as fuel. And another, well, I finished up with, I think it was nine or ten bedboards, I can't remember now. But Canadian Red Cross parcels, which we did get really spasmodically, but they, were, they all came in three-ply boxes. By using bedboards as handles on the sides and reinforcing the bottom with bedboards, you could carry coal in it, and we had a coal consignment. Now I was only a cockatoo; I couldn't lift anything. But Sandy Maston used to go out with them, and this big Kiwi pilot—I I, I wish I could remember his name. He was a fantastic bloke. He used to organise these raids. Now the German coal—they're very regimented. They know exactly what they do. They truck arrives, that tips the coal out, and it's always in the front. Now the doors on there were padlocked—huge, big doors but they had hinges on spigots. So we left the doors off, open them up, go in and get the coal from the back, bring it out, back into the hut, with the cockatoos watching for the guards to come round, give a whistle, and that they'd stop. So we had coal. We'd stick it up in the roof of the hut, and we never went short of fuel. At the same time, for 10 cigarettes, we could buy hundredweight of coal from the mine, from the actual dis- distributing centre, because you paid off the, the guards, The driver of the truck, and even back, they said he went back as far as the holding area manager. He got his cigarettes as well. Cigarettes were marvellous. They were money. I've seen one cigarette sell for one pound sterling. A loaf of bread was five cigarettes. A tin of condensed milk was five cigarettes. Now, I didn't smoke. Now, I was smoking in Italy. A tin of capsons of 50 used to cost from the British American Four shillings and sixpence, 45 cents, 50 cigarettes. God knows what they are today. So I got pleurisy and I went to see Doc. didn't know what I had. I had something. Left side was crooked. He went, I went to see Doc. And he said, well, Jack, you've got pleurisy. Now he said, I've got nothing to do. But he said, I'll tell you what, you continue smoking, you'll die. Give up cigarettes and you'll live. It's your choice. I gave cigarettes up right that month. I never smoked
1: again, not even today. Jack, as we are recording this, it's December 2017. You're, you're turning, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're turning 100 in a couple of weeks. Could you have possibly conceived back then? You're in these camps. You're 40 odd kilos. You are absolutely emaciated, malnourished, suffering all kinds of diseases and other complications. Could you have possibly imagined you were going to live to triple figures? Never doubted
0: it. Oh, that. <laughs> oh no,
1: sorry. Never
0: doubted I'd live. In fact, the Gestapo sent some young uh, trainees into the camp to, you know, And we just laughed at them. They said, no, you won't win the war. <laughs> you think you're, you're not winning the war? No, we'll win the war. Don't worry about that. We're the side with the most food. Of course, the German people were starving. The actual population, they had as much, about the same rations that we were getting. And what we were buying contraband from the Germans, that five cigarettes bought them probably three loaves of bread. So, that you know, it was all... A, a bartering system going on. Although they could sell us from that, they still help them to keep, keep
1: keep going. It's remarkable, though, you had that uh, such positivity that, no, I'm I'm going to live and you're going to lose. Uh, well, no, tough, well, man. I think in the main, I don't think that
0: any... Maybe I'm not Australian right, or New Zealand. I don't think any of us ever thought we would, wouldn't survive or wouldn't win the war. When was the different proposition, of course, because it just went on and on and on, but... We could tell once America came into the war, like '41, when they came, well, the food and the supplies was built up and built up. It just inundated the whole. Food in, in the Stale Lake 4B was more nutritious than it was in the Italian camp. But potatoes were four years old. It was all right for two years, possibly three, but by the fourth year, the potatoes had rotted. So when they came to the camps... Sometimes they were reasonable, you'd get half a potato out of a potato. But by the end of the war, the stuff we were getting, they used to hose it on the floor and just boil it and you'd eat the white part and throw away the bad part. But there was enough food to survive, irrespective of what it was. It could have been barley, sauerkraut, pickled vegetables... Sugar beet was the, one of the staple foods. You boil have sugar beet, boil them up. They're like big beetroots but sugary. That would be the meal, just sugar beet. How was the treatment by your German
1: captors compared to the Italian ones?
0: Well, you stayed there behaved yourself, you're all right. But, of course, we used to bedevil them with the fire, with the firewood. Well, it was just this key to its side that we needed more fuel for the fire so we're going to steal the fence. We gave the Russian Colonel in charge of the Russian company, there were probably fifteen, eighteen thousand Russians in this camp a hundred cigarettes to take care of the wire. So the first Sunday, all we did was remove the cleats with the pinches that we had, every second po- stringer post we'd take a cleat out so the wire sagged a little bit but not noticeable. Then the next weekend we did a few more. and so then in the finish, we took the stringer po- little string, Stringer posts about this were out completely. Now, the Germans came in, the wires, the wire was still there. They'd come down, count us, walk out, go around to the next compound. So then the big day came when we had to seal the whole fence. Now, this was only the main poles and the barbed wire. As we had said, we had organised with the Russian compound about the wire. So as we took the cleats out and pulled, pulled it off, the, we were, a number of prisoners were working and we rolled the wire, rolled it into the Russian compound and they dealt with it. We dug the posts out of the soil, not that I did much, I couldn't, but, you know, we had picks, had all sorts of twills, and we dug the pole out, saw them up, stuck them up in the sleeping. Monday morning, Blondie arrived down with his gang to us, and he walked into the compound, Countess walked out, went out through the gate and ran to the next compound again. Next morning he came in, he saw the fence was gone. Wow, did he blow so he locked us in. Unbeknownst to him, that one of our boys was a, a Scottish swaddie who'd just changed over the uh, sergeant pilot to, to, get, to get escape. And he'd taken his place in the camp. And in Borstal, in the boys' prison camp in jail in Scotland, they trained him as a locksmith. So, of course, these locks, it was a big lock, just an ordinary hoop lock. Blondie had gone well right back from here to the back fence, and a big, here we go. Blondie! The gates were wide open. He had the, just held the chain and with the padlock in it like that. Blondie went for his gun and realised, no, don't be an idiot. They'd kill me. So he walked storm door. Now he stole, stole the whole fence.
1: Were there any further repercussions or fallout from that?
0: Well, this was the end of 1944. Things were a bit too difficult to do anything very much about. They were looking to their own sort of self-preservation.
1: Tell me about the day you were set free.
0: We were set free by the Russians on the 24th of April 1945. The colonel of the Russians rode in on a pony with his men behind him dressed in civilian suits, which they'd pinched out of the German, I don't know what they called them, but they had kept all the Z civilians to replace, to give them to the soldiers when they came back, to see it was in the uniform. And the, some of them had suits on, they were riding bicycles and the, all sorts of little motorbikes. They recaptured, they didn't release us, they recaptured us. Their treatment to us, they couldn't care less. Food, they allowed us to eat what we possibly could for 48 hours out of the compound's kitchen supplies. We ate all that. Then, of course, more food. So Sandy Moss and I went out outside and we found some rhubarb, picked this rhubarb, took it back and cooked of course, got dysentery. But the actual food, they said... If you walk past around, we had a circle around the, around the compound, what you grab in your hand, that was your food for the day. Because they lived off the land. They didn't get rations the Russians. They lived off the land. What they pinched, amazing, amazing system. But anyway, we were marched to a little place called Risa, which was where the actual young boys were trained as the troops in this camp. Now, that was the repair area for the Russian tanks. They were all repairing all vehicles, engines and tanks and stuff there. So we were affiliated in the, in the huts around. And we'd, five of us decided that we're not going to stay here anymore. Best thing to do, we could escape. We went for a walk around the little, little village of Risa, I mean, always in the back, never going to the front of the shops in an occupied country because it's in the rubbish dumps, that's where they hid their stuff because they didn't want it taken by the Russians. So we found a bottle of brandy, three-star Hennessy brandy. And just then some Russian boys came down with a, a box of tin meat. So we swapped half and half. We went back to our little section where we were in this kitchen of this this boys' camp and we sort of decided we'd open the bottle let's have a little sip. So we only had a little sip each but we kept on sipping. I was told later that I abused the Russians in the camp, in this repair workshop so badly that they whisked me off and <laughs> my friends took me so... I don't remember anything about that. But at the same time, we decided to get out and the five of us left very early the next day. Now, the frontline troops, the Russians, were just like anybody else's frontline troops. We got rides on trucks, we got help from where to go... We had to make them for, towards Hallow to over the Elbe, 30, 40 kilometres, I suppose. We were walking and we stayed overnight in a farmhouse and they fed us bread, milk and cheese and asked us, could we stop the Russians taking the food from them in the, out of the dairy? I said, we, we can't stop the Russians. That's that's how they live. They come and just take what they want. You'll get nothing. We can't help you. So we moved on the next day and came to the Elbe and across the Elbe the bridges were all down but there was a, a lot of a structures. Across that you'd walk across. And across, we could see a big American master sergeant. They had ribbons up and down, and all sorts of, he was del well decked there, And he just said, Come. So we walked across, and then they interrogated us that we were actually Australians. And the first thing they did was give us a box of K rations. The worst thing they did, because immediately we got distant, because we couldn't resist the food. And you ate too much. I ate too much. But they said, The very next day, we're flying you. To Brussels, and you'll be returned to England on the 18th of May. Now, when we got to Brussels, we landed this aerodrome, a motley group we were, you know, you can imagine 20 or 30 in this DC3 thing. And we were met by the Belgian Red Cross ladies with slices of white bread and a glass of milk. Now, that white bread was just White bread it just tasted like cake to me. It was so sweet and bitter. I hadn't had white bread for nearly two, three, four years. You wouldn't have had sugar intake. No, without. well, we, we had a little bit of sugar. Not, 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 not as no, much no, as you'd oh, be concentrated no, as white no, bread. No, 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 Next day, off we went to England on a Lancaster.
1: And then you made your way home.
0: Well, went down to Brighton, of course, and stayed there for a while, and then... I toured the United Kingdom going to see my mother's and father's relatives and came back and we set out in the Orion and got back to Australia at the end of August. Well, I kissed the ground when I landed in Woolloomooloo, I can tell you. <laughs> well, I was, just, I was in hospital, hospitalised. I repaired my wounds and all that sort of stuff. I discharged in January, 46. And I went back to my old job at d Murray at this warehouse and stayed there for a few years. And I was offered a position in Melbourne. I got sick, as you can see. I've got a problem of problem eczema on my head. And the doctor said, well, he said, you can either go and live in Roma or go to Melbourne where you can have a variable weather or dry weather in Roma. I so said, I'll go to Melbourne. So I managed to get a position in Melbourne and came down. I represent a mill from Stall, which is a woolen mill. We are making 500 pieces of cloth a week and sold every one of them without any trouble for years. No problem at all. Today there's not one mill left. They were 14 then. And when did you meet your wife, Dolores? I met her in March 1946 when I came to Melbourne on a buying trip. And she was a girl working in the mill office. I didn't know I was going to be in the mill office eventually, but I used to buy from buy from that mill. We used to buy a lot of cloth from it. And when did you marry? We married in May 1954. Did you find it difficult to readjust to civilian life? Yes, very difficult. Uh, mentally... I was talking about these young boys coming back today. Well, the same thing, but we were very, very fortunate. There were so many of us that we managed to get together, we'd drink together, talk together. we go on these holidays and we'd laugh until our funny side, but our wives never really knew what we did, how, what we suffered, what what we went through. And it wasn't, as I said, until the late 80s that I did anything better. But I'm sure that that was the reason that we recovered so well. Look, I still have nightmares, There's it, it, it never goes, that anxiety state. It's down, it's dormant, it's in there. They'll never get rid of it, but you can't control it up to a point. I know they get panic attacks. I know
1: they do. They won't probably might not admit it, but I know they do because I still get panic attacks. Is it something that has impeded now or in the past on your life greatly? Or? Well, I did suffer from a lack of confidence. Being subjected like a prisoner, you sort of
0: subjugated all the time you kept down it was a problem there i've overcome that but three of my friends now with only 150 australians in that stalag 4b that's all all air force and three that i know drank themselves to death just literally drank themselves to death because they couldn't get out of it they couldn't help it
1: so i'm a lucky man in the first few years, first decade after the war, and if people are asking, did you serve or what have you, and you said you became a prisoner of war, did you encounter any negative reactions to being taken prisoner or with an in intrigue or they didn't want to talk about it with you? Or? Unfortunately,
0: we were approached as if we were to blame for being prisoners. Now, you must remember that the Japanese was such a colossal threat to Australia particularly people in the northern parts of Australia, were very visibly affected by the possibility that the Japs were coming here. And all those prisoners taken, whole division of prisoners, you know, there were a hell of a lot of people from Queensland and New, northern New South Wales in that division. And people have said to me, not many, but some have, why did you go and fight in Europe? You should have been here fighting the Japanese. I was a prisoner before the Japanese came into war but I didn't want to understand that. But I can understand their thinking because, you know, it's ours. Our people, why, why weren't you
1: here? What motivates you now to tell your story? Our
0: daughter Sandra did that. You know, she got stuck into me. And I've tried to influence other POWs to write their story, do their story, but some still haven't. I lecture at schools. I go to probers' clubs and golf clubs and tennis clubs. And I just tell my story, not anybody else's story, my story it's paid dividends for me. One gentleman said to me, he said, Jack, he said, you're giving, you're not taking. That's wonderful praise.
1: I fully agree because the courage and the strength to share such great hardship and experiences I can't possibly relate to. It's a real testament to you. And there you're speaking on behalf of those who can't share it with us today or are not willing to, and it's not just a record for your generation and the war you went through. It's the trauma and the details are different, but it's something relatable to the conflict we had in Vietnam and the conflict we have today in Afghanistan and Iraq. And
0: I felt terribly sorry when the boys came back from Vietnam. They were ostracized. I couldn't understand it. It was
1: awful. How do you look at the wars that have been fought in this century and the men and young men and women who have fought I'm in them? I'm terribly sorry for them. I really feel
0: for. I see these young boys; they just sent away, and away they go.
1: Awful. How do you look back and summarise your wartime experience, looking back with the benefit of nearly a hundred today? I
0: wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I'm very pleased that I went through it. But it taught me a lot of things. It taught me tolerance,
1: compassion, and respect. Jack, you've had an incredible life with experiences. Just an ordinary bloke, just don't worry. You might be an ordinary bloke, but you've lived an extraordinary life. Well, a bit different, let's say. A bit different than mine. (laughs) It's beyond my comprehension. Thank you for serving our country, for persevering against the odds, and for speaking with me about it today. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate
0: your interview. Thank you very much indeed.
1: My conversation with Jack Bell is the last episode for season two of Life on the Line. If you enjoyed the episode, please go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Make sure you're subscribed in your podcast app of choice to know when we're back. Don't worry, it won't be too long. Keep in touch on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L O T L Pod. Email us at podcast at com, and visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our website has more information about our World War II documentary and our book. On the website, you can also sign up for our email newsletter. Get images of our guests, information about the podcast, and updates straight to your inbox, so you never miss an episode. Life on the Line is brought to you by Alex Lloyd, Angus Horden, Thomas Kay, Sharon Maskeldare, and Rohan Viswalingam of Thistle Productions. Our artwork is by Mark Thacker of Big Cat Design. Our music is by Dan Van Workhoven of Mark IV Multimedia. Our thanks go to all those who help behind the scenes on this show. Special thanks go to Kate Davis, an Air Force veteran herself, and she has one of the biggest hearts I know. Thank you all for listening. We hope you found these stories as memorable as we have. And, as always, lest we forget.